Liz Sumner, and this is I Always Wanted To, the podcast where I interview people who are doing things that others long to do. What have you always wanted to try? Today, I'm pleased to welcome Robin Picard. Robin is currently Coordinator of Student and Community Relations at Keene State College in Keene, New Hampshire. But in the recent past, she's combined her sense of wanderlust and service to work for world organizations, including the Peace Corps and Doctors Without Borders. Welcome, Robin. Thanks so much, Liz. I'm looking forward to hearing all about your adventures and your choices and stuff, but tell me about how you got started. Have you always had this sense of wanderlust or does that come into your life later on? Tell me about the precursor to your, to your amazing travels to exotic places. Sure. You know, I attribute it to a book my mother used to read to me when I was about five or six years old that I still have. And it's called Come Over to My House to Play. And every page um, was just a really simple, you know, it was one of the first reader books that I then could read to myself. But every page were um, cartoonish drawings of kids from all over the world. And I just latched onto that book. And I, I have come to believe that that's what kind of planted the seed for me. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, I met my um, dean of students whose family had traveled for five years. They worked at the University of Beirut. Um, And then after that, for five years in a van again, traveled throughout Europe and Asia with their two children. Wow. Who were, I think, seven and nine at the time when they started. Uh Um, And they would stop and work or come home for a couple months and then come back. And their house was filled with artifacts from their trip and photos. And that certainly kind of rekindled my interest. I then, um, under their influence, spent my sophomore year in India as a study abroad. And I guess it hasn't stopped since then. And so did you do a lot of exotic world travel before the, the service-oriented ones? Or was it, did you do travel for, for fun in remote places? My freshman year of college, I did a January intercession in Europe. I think it was something like nine countries in seven days or something crazy. Uh, I don't know that that was so exotic, but that was uh, probably my first real trip. Then my sophomore year in India. Then really not a lot of travel um, until I went overseas. And, and, you know, I actually have to look because there's so much I I get the chapters mixed up. I guess I did do um, a month in Peru with my daughter. And that was just one of those things of if you could do anything, what would you want to do? And she said, I want to go to the Amazon. I want to see Peru. And uh, we had a little inheritance money. So we did that following year, we hiked the Dolomites in Italy. Then I think I took a trip to Turkey. And I think it was just because late night TV was airing all these commercials about Turkey. And I was just intrigued and took a two-week tour through Turkey. And then I guess it was time for me to do something a little bit more concrete when I joined Doctors Without Borders. Okay, so what led up to that? What, What was going on in your life that helped you make that choice? Basically, my daughter had graduated college and she was ready to go off on her own. And I had wanted to, for about five years, I had this idea in my head that I wanted to work with Doctors Without Borders. And I honestly, I hadn't visited their website. I didn't know much more than somehow I was getting appeals in the mail and, you know, and sending a $25 check every year. I didn't really know about them. 
I didn't know if or how I would be qualified, but it was in my head that when my daughter was out of college, that's what I would do. And in fact, I applied and found out that I could do it. What were the steps that, that you went through? Uh, oh, and, was, and, and how old were you at this point? So I must have been early 40s. And my daughter was out of college, like I said. And so I just got on the website and looked it up and sent off an application. At the time, I was doing community organizing work um, for small business folks, micro business folks. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a little bit of financial knowledge, which is what they were seeking at that time. They invited me for an interview in New York City, and I showed up, and one thing led to another. The interesting thing was when I went to New York City, I had no idea about how to get to New York City and what I was going to do, and I wasn't well prepared. And in fact, I missed my train in Springfield. So I was running across town to get on the bus so I could make my interview. When I went into the bus station, I was a little bit unnerved looking around, you know, was I safe? Where should I sit? Where should I wait? And I saw a woman that to me looked like somebody I would want to sit next to. And I plopped myself down and we started a conversation. I told her I was on my way to uh, an interview with Doctors Without Borders. And she looked at me and she pointed to a large duffel bag. And she said, I'm just coming from a mission with Doctors Without Borders. And in fact, I missed my ride and I wasn't supposed to be at this bus station, but I'm trying to get a bus to get home. Wow. And I thought, my goodness, I wasn't supposed to be in the bus station. I was supposed to be on the train. So she told me all about her work and who I would meet in the New York office. And a year later, she was my manager in Kenya on my first mission. Oh, wow. Oh, that's As a matter of fact, I'm going to see her this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. So, okay. So, so it was providential. It really was. And yeah. it sounds like you were doing some good choosing. And did this feel like, well, of course, or did it feel like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is happening. Well, you know, I went to the interview and I was totally, usually I'm really good at interviews and I left there feeling like there's no way they would hire me. It was, I didn't feel welcomed. I didn't feel connected to people. The only part of the interview I thought I really did well on was the Spanish part. And I mentioned that to the, to the gentleman and he said, oh, it has nothing to do with anything. You know, we're not looking for somebody for a Spanish speaking mission. So I left feeling pretty dejected and didn't think that I, I made the cut. And in fact, um, within two days they called and offered me a position. At that point, they offered me a position in, I think it was in Darfur. So when the time came, I showed up to New York City. You spend a day or two there first with you know, the appropriate um, preparations to go to Darfur. And when I showed up, they said, well, you know, we think instead it's gonna be the highlands of China. So I wasn't quite prepared as far as my clothing, but I said, fine, okay. And we were waiting. Um, and I think I was in New York City for about a week for things to get sussed out. And then they said, you know, China's not gonna work. They couldn't get the visa. And they sent me back to New Hampshire. And I was just Aww. heartbroken. Um, and it took a couple months for them to have an assignment for me in Kenya. So meanwhile, I was piecing together part-time work and wondering if this would ever happen. But it did, it did. Okay, so, so then, so you went to Kenya and how long were you there and what was your role? Yeah, so I was in Kenya. I was initially sent for six months and my role was to be the finance person in the rural. They normally have a team in the capital 
but I was in the rural section. But what's and the finance was, person do? So the finance person is the one that pays all the workers. So it was a hospital for HIV and TB. And obviously there's a lot of Kenyan staff and there's a lot of what they call casual workers where they employ them just to come in if we're building a lab or have some temporary kind of work. So my role was to learn all of the Kenyan labor laws and to be in charge of the payroll and to be in charge of the budget for building this new lab. So it was, it was more than I expected because we were doing budgeting in three currencies, in U.S. dollars, in Kenyan, I think they were shillings. And for some reason, we were getting money from a French mission in euros. So it was a lot, but it was fun. And then they extended my mission for an extra three months so that I could be there for nine months. And then I stayed on in country on my own for three months. So I was there for about a year. How did it meet your expectations? What had you anticipated? What was it like? What were the, the surprises? You know, it was all new to me. I had never been in Africa. So that part was just, I remember, you know, being wide-eyed going from the airport to the place where I was stationed, which was about a, you know, a five-hour drive in the red roads and the, you know, seeing giraffes and just everything you can imagine. What I loved is that we had an international team. So it was almost like going back to college Mm -hmm. and we all lived together. There was a gentleman from Guatemala, a woman from New Zealand, one from Australia. Who else was on our team? Somebody from Spain, somebody from France. And people switch in and out, which I wasn't aware of. So everybody has set time to be there. So your team is constantly changing. So that was fun. You always had colleagues and it was always international. Uh, I didn't even know about that. So that was great. The missions and the organization is run very hierarchical. And I I also found that a little surprising, the type of reporting, the type of positions. So that was new to me. What else could I say? You know, I think I was just so alive because everything was new. I mean, the culture, Mm -hmm. the food, Mm -hmm. uh, it was a fascinating time. It It was really fascinating. Okay, so your first mission was really successful, it sounds like. Right. It was. Uh, then, then what happened? So then, as I said, I finished my mission and I left and I was in another part of Kenya where I found a great opportunity. I was given free room and board at, what was it called? Kind of like an ecological center on the ocean. And in, in exchange, they wanted me to help them run a, write a business plan and to try to find some kind of income producing aspect of their business. So I spent literally three months living on the beach in Kenya that was wild. That was, that was just an amazing time. And then I went home and I was looking for work and it was a tough time to find work. And they called and said, would you like to do another mission? And believe it or not, I took South Sudan <laughs> um, as a mission just because honestly, I just couldn't find work here. It wasn't like I was really excited to go to South Sudan, but I felt like I didn't have a lot of, a lot of other options. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the same experience at all. What was different? Obviously, Kenya is a lot more, although there were certainly, you know, the trials and tribulations of the serious HIV crisis and the TB epidemic. But Sudan was, you know, literally living in a war-torn area. We were very much restricted. You know, we could just go from the compound uh, to the hospital and back. You know, virtually a lack of, I don't want to say culture, but a lack of vitality. Mm. Uh, I was in Juba just because the country had gone through over 20 years of civil war. Nobody had been to school. Tradespeople were few and far in between. So the living was really harsh as far as 
you know, that the way the houses were built, they weren't comfortable. You couldn't get, you know, if you had trouble with the water system, you couldn't get anybody to repair it. The food was very, I think for the entire time I was there, we ate yogurt, hot dogs, tomato soup. I mean, the, the diet was, you know, pretty minimal. Every once in a while we could sneak off. There was an Indian restaurant in town that was fabulous. Um, and every once in a while we could sneak off and go there. But it was just harsh living. It was mm. harsh living. It was also a French-speaking mission. So I felt very isolated. There were only four of us there, and three were from France and myself. And while I could understand bits and pieces, it was very isolating socially. What work were you doing? Were you doing similar so work? I was actually switched at that point to do the HR, not, not any finance at all. And I had done some HR in Kenya. This was really interesting because we hired both Dinka and Nuer, which were the tribes in South Sudan. And there were some very, how can I say, there were some very specific ways of how the Dinka and Nuer would interact and how they wouldn't. Mm. So it was really, really a tricky situation as an employer. Were you taught? It was explained to you clearly? What, how did, yeah. how did... I don't know that I would say it was explained to me clearly, but you caught on pretty quickly because you realized, and I'm trying to remember it now, we, we had to hire women from Kenya to do the men's laundry because there was something in both the Dinka and the wear where they couldn't touch men's underwear. <laughs> I mean, some crazy things. All the different holidays, and you couldn't, you couldn't place the two together on certain projects because they didn't want to interact. So you might hire the Dinka to do one job and then Nuwera to do another. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was something. Is your description of it uh, flavored by hindsight? Uh, what, was it, what was it your experience like as you were actually there? My experience as I was actually there, like I said, it was really isolating. So I oftentimes felt like I was just kind of shooting from the hip and hoping that things would be okay. And I'd have to really sit down and get jog my memory, kind of to think about my day-to-day experience. I mean, it was, it was just it, incredibly hot. Like, you just barely got through the day because it was just so hot. Not a lot of uh, stimulation, really. Mm-hmm. I did get to take one trip out of, the, out of Juba because one of our cars had gone off to the rural site, which I would fly to from time to time to, to check in with the staff there. But there was an accident one time. And the car was abandoned. The car was full of medicine and Christmas gifts. And we needed to get that car back because that's obviously a great asset. So I was actually sent out to retrieve the car. And I had to deal with a rural police station, for lack of a better word. And they had taken the car off the road and towed it to this spot where they literally built a big stick fence around it. And they weren't going to let the vehicle go. And I was actually sent with a bag of cash to buy back that car um, and and I'm thinking what, what am I doing out in the middle of nowhere but that was actually a fascinating experience I walked into this you know mud hut police chief's office and on the wall was a wooden sign that said big daddy <laughs> and all I could think of was that movie is, is it the king of Scotland oh um, oh oh okay yeah yeah and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and there's Kalashnikovs like sitting against the wall, oh, and there's one decrepit desk and the sign behind the guy, Big Daddy. And I'm wow. trying to negotiate with this person to get the van back. And in fact, I did get the car back, and I didn't even give money. 
but it was amazing because there were only two tow trucks in all of Juba. We had to have, you know, have one come out there. You couldn't travel at night because there was a curfew. So it was just this, just logistics alone were incredible. And when we finally put the car on the tow truck, well, the people in that area probably had never seen a tow truck. So we had hundreds of people just watching, you know, and intrigued. And the whole thing was just kind of mind-blowing, really. So, so how long did you stay with that mission? Uh, so that mission, I was there for almost four months. Almost okay. four months. And, and were supposed you- supposed to be there six, but I, I just decided I had to come home. I was also worried because it was time for the elections and things were heating up. And as a matter of fact, one day I was in the labor office and waiting to do something with the Minister of Labor and, and trucks were going by with people in the back and guns. And I got a text from the people in the compound saying, we're coming for you, come outside now. And I didn't realize it, but they thought it was a coup. And I was, had been waiting for the minister for hours. So I was not realizing the message was urgent. And I was trying to wait to solve this issue with the minister about a, a, a person we had fired. And then they come back with a case for financial you know, remuneration. So I didn't want to give up my place in line. I didn't realize it was so serious. And when I got out there, I realized what was happening. And about a week later, I said, yeah, I'm just going home. This was, it was too tricky, too tricky. And then what happened? What uh, what um, year are we up to now? And Maybe 2011 or 12. Okay. And then I think I might have found some work in the area for a while. And then I decided I wanted to, you know, do similar work again. But what I really wanted to do was go in the Peace Corps. Um, I had done the Peace Corps right out of college. Oh, I didn't loved. know that. Yeah, I was in Honduras. So I decided I would see if they took older volunteers. And in fact, they're very welcoming to older volunteers. Mm-hmm. So I applied and that application process took a, took a bit of time, but I applied and they called and said, hey, what do you think of Ukraine? I said, I don't think anything about Ukraine because I don't know a thing about it. And they said, would you be interested to go? And I thought, absolutely. And that started a, a great love affair with both the Peace Corps and the Ukraine. I would definitely want to hear about the Ukraine, but a couple of things. I want to know how the Peace Corps treats older volunteers and, mm-hmm. and what they're looking for in, in older mm-hmm. volunteers, and mm-hmm. the differences between Peace Corps and MSF. So, you know, my friends in MSF really kind of scoffed at the idea of the Peace Corps. They saw it, you know, as not as efficient, uh, you know, kind of the friendly corps, they would laugh. And it is very different, but I absolutely believe in the power of relations and, and um, goodness and friendship and, and how far and, and what that can do. So MSF, like I said, is very much, you almost take a CAN program into a country. For mm-hmm. instance, when we were in, I think it was in Sudan, we were going to do a vaccination clinic out in the, in the bush, in the rural spot. And when we went out there, we knew exactly from the manual how many minutes it would take to vaccinate each child, how many workers we needed, it included um, how much time the workers would need for their tea breaks, because that's a huge legal thing in both Sudan and Kenya. How many vehicles we would need, you know, how many nurses, like everything was planned literally to the minute. And the Peace Corps isn't like that. The Peace Corps, you go in country and you settle in, you look around and then you, you interview people and you find out what's needed and then you develop a program. Another big difference is in MSF, we lived in a compound with the workers and local folks weren't really allowed to come into the houses. 
matter of fact, it was prohibited. And for safety reasons, you couldn't give the appearance of being affiliated with somebody that might be connected to a political party or movement. Peace Corps is exactly the opposite. You're living right in the community. And I really love that part of it. I love that part of the Peace Corps. And so I think the Peace Corps likes older workers because they bring a certain amount of professional experience. I think young workers are great because they are malleable and willing and energetic. But I think the older Peace Corps worker, particularly in a country like Ukraine, which is an elder culture, it works really well, I think, to bring in older volunteers. I think the Peace Corps, and I have been in a few countries now, so I've seen it works very differently in different countries, but I think the Peace Corps is also very responsive to placing people in homes and cities and cultures that work well for older volunteers. Mm. I think they're responsive to needs, you know, whether it might be medical, physical, professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what kind of prep did you need in order to go to Ukraine? Uh, they sent, it was fabulous, they sent all kinds of reading material to, to read more about different ways to understand a culture. Uh, they sent a lot of um, articles about the history of Ukraine. Uh, they sent some videos showing different foods and uh, traditions. They were amazing. They just kept flooding, you know, and to peak your interest level. So that was great. I felt like I had a lot of fun and, and it just, you know, built up my anticipation like crazy. Mm-hmm. And what about language? Oh, language too. What am I, what am I thinking? And they sent us some tapes, some language programs we had to start. And I was really disciplined. I had gone off to Costa Rica for, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks to visit some friends. And I was studying every day, you know, three to four hours alone in my room, you know, and they could hear me repeating and, you know, going with the computer. And I was really excited. Uh, I can remember when I arrived at the airport, I was trying to say something to one of the host people that came up to me and um you know wasn't really doing it very well so they finally said what what are you trying to say in english but um <laughs> i was i was so excited to to learn ukrainian and did pretty well with it after the year you know and what was your job there so my work there they called it community development and i was placed in a library and what they were trying to do was turn libraries into community centers so they would do things like train people on computers uh, have different kind of courses have different kind of events and and in a post-communist country people didn't really lend themselves to that kind of community thing outside of maybe a traditional festival so it really was you know, kind of slow work in in making some cultural shifts. Help me understand why a post-communist country doesn't like community centers. Well, you know, I think what had happened with them is that there was a lot of forced volunteerism. There was a lot of forced community activities. Ah. So there was um, certainly some lack of trust and suspicion Mm -hmm. about, Mm -hmm. well, what do you want from me if I come to this thing? Um, And certainly they had a lot of suspicion still about Americans. You know, they would ask, you know, why are you really here? Mm -hmm. What are you really doing? One time I I finally, my language was good enough that I could go up to this woman who I saw every morning, an old, old woman all dressed like in blankets and coats, always outside on her porch. And I could finally go up to her and say, you know, hello, I'm your neighbor and how are you? And she just looked at me and she said, I know, uh, I know you're my neighbor. I know everything about you. Tell me what you're really doing. <laughs> wow. Well, what did you say? What did you say? And people would say things like, I never thought I would meet an American. 
They just thought that was out of the question. Uh, so I think this whole sense of, and we ended up bringing women to the, to the library to learn how to put their arts on Etsy, oh, how to make oh. a site to sell their arts on Etsy. And that took, because they just laughed at us. They said, oh, why would we believe people would send money? Why would we trust? Why would we send off our things and believe people are going to pay? They just couldn't wow. wrap their heads around that. So that was great because they get to learn computer skills and marketing skills and some business skills. So I know some of this story, but tell the, the listeners about your living situation when you were in Ukraine. So my, my, actually, my first living situation was awful. I lived with a woman for maybe the first three months who I'm not sure why she took me in other than maybe she had a monetary need. And she just, the only thing she would ever do is just yell at me, I don't understand you. I don't understand you. I would eat alone. She would put food and not very good food at all. And Ukrainians have wonderful food. But I would have, see the food sitting on the table. She would never sit with me. It was never warmed up. I mean, it was just unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And I finally said, you know, I have to find another place to live. And I had seen this little neighborhood behind the library that was just charming. And I would always say, if only I could live there. So one day, one of the librarians walked me, and I didn't really understand what was happening, but she walked me to somebody's house and knocked on the door. And we met this gentleman named Boris. And it seemed Boris had a room to rent. And he would normally rent out to some of the local college kids. And he didn't like this college kid that had been there. So I, I didn't realize this until afterwards. He, he kind of kicked this other student out um, and took me in. And he was uh, in his 80s. He was widowed and just grieving. It had already been two years and he was just beside himself missing his wife. And I was fortunate to live with Boris, this gruff, gruff old man originally from uh, Russia, who was one of the people who had then been, you know, kind of placed when Russia relocated people. He worked all week in his little shed, and I never really was able to go into the shed until months later, when I guess he thought it was appropriate. But he would find things on the street and fix them or refashion them. And every Sunday, he would load a little cart that he had made up to his bicycle. And bicycle, and this is in the middle of winter, freezing cold, with his big fur hat, his big coat and his big mittens and his dog would chase after him and he would ride off to the Sunday market set out his wares and he also made knives um, in that shop and he would just sell his wares on a Sunday morning and then come home around noontime and uh, his daughter would often come from Kiev and she would have made a beautiful meal for him and just served him literally she would serve him and then sit by him while he ate and she wouldn't eat while he was eating. And she would just wait to take his dirty dishes and give him the next course. It, it was just wonderful to be part of that family. And it took Boris a few months. And, and then he spent some time trying to help me with my language, interacting with me. I guess there was scuttlebutt that he and I were involved. Oh. There was some talk in the town. Oh, oh and he, he was a retired, very respected professor. And he was just horrified. So he made sure that when we were out together, that I walked behind him, that I wasn't overly friendly. He did not want to give any appearances of (laughs) wrongdoing. I I see. So (laughs) now I remember that your experience had kind of a sad ending. Tell Tell us about that. I will say that one thing Boris and I ended up having a ritual is I would buy ice cream and he loved ice cream. And he wasn't supposed to have 
too much due to some health condition that I never understood. Although at one point I was actually giving him shots daily and I tried to explain to him, I'm not a nurse. I don't, and no, no, you know, I had to give him these shots, but I would, after dinner, I would say to him, you know, would you like some ice cream? And he would always say, Devai, which means like, <laughs> let's do it. Bring it on, Devai. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of my purpose in his life, I think, was to, to bring on that ice cream. And we'd sit and have ice cream together at night. So the politics in Ukraine heated up and it got to the point where when the U.S. was responding to the embassy and to the powers that be, they weren't getting responses. And then when that happens, that's when the Peace Corps decides that we all have to be evacuated. Mm -hmm. So the banks were closing down. So we had a text to make sure to get some money out of the bank. And we all had to go to, we all had a safe space that was designated, you know, before we even went on site. And we were told to go to the safe space. Well, my problem was that the banks had closed. I couldn't get money. And um, I was waiting for the, for the banks to reopen because I didn't have cash in my room, which was not something I was always supposed to have a little bit of cash because the Peace Corps really does great training in the event there's an emergency. But anyway, I waited a day or two for the banks to open. I finally got some cash. Well, by then the buses had stopped running because there was uh, the Russians had come into Donetsk, which wasn't that far from me. So I waited and every morning my um, Boris would take me to the bus station and try to get me on a bus. And, and we really weren't supposed to tell them that we were evacuating because they didn't want to you know, increase the anxiety in the country. But I told him that we had to go off to a conference. And I think he knew we could only carry one bag, one small bag. Anyway, finally, I think it was the third or fourth day I was able to get the bus out. And it was really scary because they would stop at checkpoints and there'd be the military tanks and there'd be big fires burning. And, you know, I could hear them say, you know, there was an Americati on the, on the bus and they would come on. They would ask me for my passport. I would, I would never give my passport. I would hold on to it and just show them. And I didn't know, were these the Ukrainian soldiers or the soldiers from Russia that had invaded? I didn't know. And every time we went through a checkpoint, you know, I would text, okay, here's where I am. Here's where I am. So it was about a maybe a four-hour journey, and I finally got to the safe house, and we stayed there for a couple of days. Then they whisked us off to the airport, and on the way to the airport, we had Ukrainian staff with us. They received a message that there was going to be a, some kind of protest at the airport. So we circled around, and we had to go to a different airport that was, you know, maybe a six-hour ride away. And finally, they got us all out of the country. And as we all know, things really erupted. But it was really sad to leave before we could finish our mission, you know, without really being able to say proper goodbyes to folks. And, and Boris did come right to the gate with me. And, and he, he had a tear when I was leaving. He, he had a tear down his face and gave me a big hug. And it was really sad. It was. But you've stayed in touch with his family, right? I, yeah, I do stay in touch with them. And matter of fact, usually I send packages at Christmas and we'll Skype and we Skype less now because I'm, I'm just forgetting the language, you know, mm. so we mostly just Skype and go like this, like, mm. you know, touch our hearts. And <laughs> mm. <laughs> but we do send, you know, uh, messages through Facebook probably every two weeks oh. in photos. And when I, when I was getting ready to leave, the daughter came from Kiev and she brought me into Boris's room and opened this big, like a cedar chest. And she pulled out two traditional outfits, Ukrainian outfits, all hand embroidered that were her grandmother's. Wow. 
And she asked me to pick one. And I kept saying, I, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly. And she said, no, one was for her. And the other one was for me, their, their sec, Boris's second daughter. Oh. Yeah. And this thing wow. must be, you know, now it's probably almost, I don't know, a hundred years old. And it's this beautiful hand woven, even the materials she said the grandmother wove, all embroidered with a sash and a shawl. Just, I can't believe they parted with that and, and offered that to me. Do you have pictures of it? Can we put pictures in the podcast notes? Yeah, I can send that to you. I yeah. used to have it hanging on my wall. I had it beautifully displayed on my wall for a long time, and then I took it down. But I could, I could send a picture. That would be great. I would really love yeah. that. That was so emotional. Yeah. So how can you top that? What were your thoughts when you were sent home from Ukraine? You know, it was just more worry for them what was going to happen. I know the economy has really been difficult. You know, he's lucky because he doesn't get a big pension, but he has this little trade that he can do. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think he might have had a few rental properties. I think mm-hmm. there were some, and his daughter and his son is actually a, a pretty high official in the Ukrainian army. It was a fabulous experience, just wonderful people. And they were so patient with me. You know, mm-hmm. I realize now I spoke like a three-year-old, really. Even when I thought I was doing well, I was probably like a three, three or four-year-old. But it was fabulous, yeah. What about your world travels after that? Well, so then I came home and um, because I hadn't done the two years, Peace Corps said, well, we'll reassign you. And I could wait and go through the entire application process again to get a country that I really preferred, which I didn't want to go through the uh, arduous application process, or I could take the assignment they gave me, which was Mozambique. So I was home for about three months and then I turned around and went off to Mozambique. That was not at all the experience that I had in Ukraine. I thought it would be a lot like, you know, Kenya, and I had traveled through Ethiopia and Uganda and, and then South Sudan. I thought it would be similar, and it was in some ways. But I think what happened in Mozambique is I don't think they were really meant for older volunteers. Mm-hmm. I think because Ukraine is such a westernized, if you will, or sophisticated mm-hmm. country, the way that they ran things was much better than Mozambique. Mm-hmm. My homestay family was really just uh, kind of a nightmare. I guess I was one of two older volunteers in the group and it, we just, it just wasn't easy. Let's put it that way. It wasn't easy. I finally went to my site after the three months of training and literally the guy dropped me off at the gate and the Peace Corps person didn't wait to see could I get into this house that was supposed to be there for me literally just left everything by the gate and and went and I think that's how that kind of summed up how I felt the whole time in Mozambique Mm -hmm. I I don't think I felt that there was an organization behind me or good support Mm -hmm. but I did stay to complete my second year I had some interesting experiences but I certainly didn't feel a connection I felt in Ukraine at all so is there any way to, for somebody to tell what is going to be a good assignment and what isn't, or at least a good assignment for an older volunteer? You know, I think the Peace Corps did say that they hadn't had much success with older volunteers in Mozambique, mm-hmm. but I felt a little disheartened that I didn't know there was enough interest for them to look at why or what mm-hmm. changes might be made. Mm-hmm. In, in contrast, older volunteers go to Lesotho, which is not too far from Mozambique, and do wonderfully. Hmm. 
And I, I kept saying, well, can we find out why and what's different and what could we incorporate? But I didn't feel like there was a system really to do that. I can't remember whether you were looking to do some sort of organizational work for the Peace Corps, not, not travel, but working with the people who organize things. Yeah. So my dream was, and it still is, that I would love to work, work for them, not as a volunteer, but work for them. And I did apply for one position down in D.C. after I got back from Mozambique. And that was actually kind of disheartening, too. I felt like I was interviewed by 20-somethings. Mm. I felt absolutely that they had made up their mind, you know, before I was even in the door. Mm. I felt really out of sync. But I still think there's room and potential for that. And that may, that may still happen. We'll mm -hmm. see. That may still happen. So, so now you're in the U.S. You have two grandchildren. Is that right? I have two grandchildren now that live right in the next town in Marlboro, your old town. Do you think you're going to be a stay in the United States kind of person from now on? You know, I keep saying that as soon as they get to, you know, the age where they don't need their grandmother as much or have much, pay much attention to me, then I'm, I'm free to go again. But you never know. I mean, and I, I, I tease my daughter. I say, you know, if they turn out to be bad people or they're not interested in me, then I'm out of here. You know, <laughs> I don't think either of those things will happen, but um, I do think there might come a time when I might feel more inclined to go a little further afield, but mm -hmm. that's not quite yet. Uh, I just did a two-week walk on the Camino, mm -hmm. and my little grandson, when I came home, said, you went too far and you went for too long. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, well, you could always be anti-mame and, and take them with you. Uh, well, that's what I told He asked me, he said, you know, could we go? Could I take my bicycle and we could go there again? And I said, yeah, sure, we'll do that when you get a little older. Wow. So that may be an option. It, it, it may look different, but I'm sure I'll do something again. What would you tell somebody who is thinking, gee, you know, I've, I've kind of wanted to go around the world and do, do some service organization like, like Doctors Without Borders or the Peace Corps. What message would you say to them? I think if they, I think if they, well, I want to say, I think if they investigate it, but I didn't really do that. So how hypocritical am I? Um, <laughs> I think if they can separate the, the dream part of it, the romantic part of it, and the real, reality of it, they should pursue it. I will say my daughter came to Kenya after I had been there a year, and I wanted her to see where I had worked, although I, I didn't want her to see the hospital and, and the, the clinic, but I wanted her to see the community and the house where I'd lived. And she had traveled all over the world with me, and we lived in Mexico City for a year, and she had seen some things. And when she saw my community in Homa Bay, she just started crying and saying, I had no idea you were living like this. And I thought it was a wonderful place to live. I loved it. But I lost sight of the fact that, you know, it was harsh. People were down and out and in the, living in the streets and, you know, a lot of illness and sickness. And so I think people need to take the romance out of it to, to think about mm -hmm. if they could be successful. I think there are some things you can't really know until you get there. So mm -hmm. for me, I knew that there were certain dangers with all these travels, but, and, and you know that going in that, you know, uh, in Sudan, for instance, the plane didn't have lights, the plane didn't have landing gear. So you can't expect the level of safety. And yet sometimes you don't really understand the gravity of that until you're there. Mm -hmm. So that's something that to think about, although I think you have to experience it to see what your level of comfort is to accept certain things. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, 
the way you describe it, and from what I remember talking to you while you were traveling, you don't seem very scared. You, you in the moment, you manage. Uh, you, you sound as though you manage very well and, and yeah. without fear. Is that, yeah. am I remembering that right? Is that your experience that? It, it is. Yeah, you, I, think you, I, I think I had done really, really well with, um, you know, I think back to situations that I've been in and I laugh hysterically now, but I just was full of trust and hope and, you know, some sensibility, you know, certainly some risk management uh, awareness. And now I look back and I say, hmm, would I, would I do it the same way? I, I think some things have shifted for me, partly due to that accident in uh, Mozambique, partly maybe just something about grandparenting. You're mm -hmm. reminded about different things that, or maybe I felt like I had different freedoms with a grown daughter, like, oh, I could take certain risks because now mm -hmm. my life is my own again. Mm -hmm. And maybe now I think, well, no, now I have a duty to these grandkids and but yeah, you're right. I think I've done a lot of things and I just trust, you know, this will work itself out and we'll be fine. And they generally and they do. Were. Yeah. yeah, they were. They were. So, so if somebody was wanting to explore the idea, there, there are people they can talk to to help them see what's real and not the, the romance, right? Sure. I think, I mean, there's so many blogs these days. The Peace Corps website has all kinds. And you can find kind of the unofficial blog people. I know we, you, you really were supposed to have your blogs approved of by someone mm -hmm. in the Peace Corps mm -hmm. before you posted, unless, you know, you specifically stated this is not official. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of things people can read out there. I think you'll find as many perspectives as there are people. I think the yep. experiences really vary. And I think that's the same with Doctors Without Borders, with mm -hmm. MSF. I don't know how much you could really find out about that other than their website, unless you figure out or you get connected to some people who served. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I've seen a lot of the people in MSF keep blogs. I think they pride themselves on kind of being not as folksy as somebody might be that keeps a blog and there's uh, a generalist for mm -hmm. you, but, and I could be wrong and that could have changed since, mm -hmm. but I think people in MSF too are also so busy and so consumed that writing about it doesn't often happen the way mm -hmm. it does, I think with the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Robin. This has been Thank wonderful. I, this has been I, so fun. I, I love picturing you in all of these places. And I, and I just, I like the, the attitude that you have. I, I think you, it makes me pleased to know that, that people see you and say, ah, oh, this is what Americans look like. So <laughs> that's cool. the best compliment ever. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. My thanks to Robin Picard. I invite you to tell me what you've always wanted to do and who you like to hear about in an upcoming episode. I'm Liz Sumner, reminding you to be bold, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>